Hi there, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ. I want to thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and learn how to live as He wants us to live. In our modern world, we want to be what those early Christians in the New Testament were. We want congregations to be what those early congregations were. Therefore, it stands to reason if we just go back to the New Testament, read what they did that was approved by God, and do that, we also will be approved by God. With that in mind, open your Bibles to the letters to the Thessalonians and learn about a church for which Paul said he could be thankful. As we examine what they did and apply that to our lives and to the congregations of which we are a part, we can be like them. And Paul could be thankful for us, and so could God. I invite you to open your Bibles and study along with us as we learn to be a church like Thessalonica. The church at Thessalonica, if we learn anything about it, we learn that Paul appreciated them, that he was thankful for the kind of people that they were and the kind of work that they do. Throughout the letters that he writes to the Thessalonians, he constantly, while he is encouraging them to do better and do better, constantly commends them and encourages them in what they are already doing well. In fact, at the very beginning of the book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Paul was thankful for the brethren in Thessalonica. When we talked about Philemon a couple weeks ago, we talked about wanting to be the kind of people, the kind of Christians that others could be thankful for. Here, Paul talks about some others for whom he was thankful. And we want to be like this. We want to be like the church at Thessalonica. The Thessalonians were strong Christians who were faithful, who worked hard. And there are three things that Paul points out here in, this two, in these two verses about the Thessalonians that he appreciated, that made him thankful. And I'd like for us to notice these three keys, the things that, that made Paul thankful for them. Because here at Franklin, we need to be a church like the church at Thessalonica. Being commendable, such that if Paul were here today, he could commend us. And he could say, I give thanks to God for you every day because of these things. The very first one that we'll notice is the fact that he was able to commend them for their work of faith. Faith, of course, here is the concept of conviction. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 it says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The people in Thessalonica had been idol worshippers. And when Paul came to them and presented them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the saving message, they were turned away from that paganism and that idolatry, and they were convicted in the faith of God and His Son and the Spirit, and they turned with great reception to the gospel. And when they did that, it wasn't just a moment of faith, it wasn't just some type of intellectual assent. Paul says, I give thanks because of your work of faith. This kind of conviction, this conviction of that God is there, that God is real, and remember, of course, the kind of faith that we have to have from Hebrews chapter 11, 
We have to believe that God is and that He is the rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And when we have that kind of faith, what's it going to do? It's going to produce action. You remember what James said in James chapter 2 and verse 26. In James chapter 2 and verse 26, For just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Without the work of faith, there really is no faith. And Paul was able to look at these Christians in Thessalonica and say, I'm thankful for you because I hear about your work of faith, your toil and your labor and all that you are accomplishing because you believe. Do we believe? What work are we doing that backs up, that folks could say we hear about the work of faith in the Franklin congregation? When you consider this concept of work of faith, we might ask what kind of things would that produce? What kind of work? The very first kind of work that that would produce is the moral living. Serving Christ morally and doing things His way. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, Peter says that we are to add to our faith virtue. Or as the New American Standard says, moral excellence. This is the concept of here's the faith, here's the conviction, and now we add to that the work, the obedience to Jesus Christ, doing the things that He says are right because they're right. And when we consider the Thessalonians, there in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of that first letter, Paul talks about all the things that they were doing. He starts 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, saying, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk. Paul was able to say, you are walking according to that instruction. He went on to encourage them to excel still more. But he said, you are walking in that. Their faith was producing the virtue and the walk and the morality that was pleasing to God. And that's the kind of work that faith produces. The second thing that we'll consider is doctrinal purity. They were going to make sure to maintain the teaching of Christ, the traditions that were handed down to them by Paul, the traditions of the apostles that came from God to the apostles and were passed on. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. So then, brethren, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Paul was encouraging them, maintain the standard of sound words and sound doctrine. Don't drift off and start doing all manner of things. Do what God wants. And of course, in 2 John verse 9 and 10, or verse 9, in 2 John verse 9, we find out why this doctrinal purity is so important. In 2 John and verse 9, it says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching or doctrine of Christ does not have God. And the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and Son. It goes on, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house and don't give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. We're supposed to maintain this doctrinal purity, the teaching of Christ, because if we neglect the teaching of Christ and add to and take away, we no longer have the Father and we no longer have the Son. We lose that standing with God. But when we have faith, it produces the work of maintaining God's standard regarding doctrine. The third work that that produces 
is the strengthening of the body, the encouraging of the brethren. There in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 18, Paul said to the Thessalonians, after he had given them some encouraging words, he said, use this, use what I've just taught you. He says, therefore comfort one another with these words. But then a little bit down further in, in chapter 5 and verse 11, he says, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. The Thessalonians believed God and they, they had faith and so they were comforting one another. They believed God's promises. They knew that Jesus was returning. They knew that despite what was going on around them, that God's rewards were coming. And so they were encouraging one another. They were strengthening and building up. As 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11 says, when you look in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at about verse 14, Paul wrote there, as a result, Ephesians 4.14, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. How does this church grow? By what every joint supplies. We're the joints. And what do we supply? By the proper working of each individual part, it says. This is the work that those who have faith accomplish. The fourth thing that we consider is, of course, teaching the gospel. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul said to the Thessalonians, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. This is the word. Wouldn't that be great for this to be able to be said about us? For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, and not only in Franklin and Middle Tennessee, but in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. This is the kind of work that those who have faith do. And just two comments to be made about this. Number one, is this points out something about the local congregation. Church is not just some place we go. The church is a relationship in which we work with others. And so the question to you individually is, what work are you doing? And the second point to learn from that is that the church will only be able to be commended for its work of faith when we as individuals are stepping up to the plate and doing our work of faith. Paul was able to say there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. If we're going to be a church like the, Thessal like the one in Thessalonica, we're going to have to have a work of faith. It's not, just, it's not enough just to believe. We've got to be doing something with it and working. The second thing that he commended them for, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, was their labor of love. The term love here is that term we always hear about, agape, and we know, having heard enough sermons on love, that that is the word for unconditional love. That means we don't love because of anything in the person, because of what they have done for us or will do for us or can do for us. We love them just because we love them for the same reason God loves them. And 1 John 4 8 says, God is love. That's why he loves. 
Not because we deserve it, not because we can do anything for Him, but just because that's who and what He is. And that's the kind of love that we're supposed to have. The unconditional love that we love just because that's who we are. No matter what anybody can do for us. But that word labor goes a little bit farther than the word work that we talked about with the work of faith. This kind of labor is not just getting up and going and doing the job. It's the kind of labor that's intense and is working through toil and trouble. That's what the term translated there specifically means. Working through toil and trouble. It's not just work. It's working even though it's a hardship. Even though we don't like it. Even though we feel trapped in it. We're working despite anything that anybody else is doing to us and for us. The labor of love. Why were they working that way? Because of love. Because they love God. Got to make sure I hit the button at the right time. Because they love God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, we read moments ago about how the Thessalonians had been idol worshippers. But now they had turned to love Jehovah God. And we learn from 2 John in verse 6 what it means to love God. 2 John, verse 6, John there wrote, This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. And we read moments ago about those in Thessalonica in chapter 4 and verse 1, that they were walking and pleasing God. Paul said, just as you actually do walk. These are people that were walking according to God's commands. They loved God and they were doing things His way. And it was causing a hardship. It was causing problems. There were folks who didn't like them for this. They were dealing with persecution. But they continued on because they loved God anyway. Not only did they love God, but they loved their brethren. Matthew, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. I don't know where Matthew came from. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. He says, you guys are doing so good at loving your brethren, I really don't even have to say anything to you about it. He said, you're not only loving one another there, excuse me, in Thessalonica, but you're loving the brethren all over the place. And it doesn't say exactly how they were doing that, but I imagine that when folks were traveling, these folks were filled with hospitality. They were probably sending benevolent aid to these others in Macedonia as they had need. But what was demonstrated is that they loved their brethren. And they would care for them. And they would demonstrate that love. And it was a labor of love. Working through hardship, toil, and trouble. Because they loved. And of course, the third group that they loved were the non-Christians. Demonstrated already by the passage we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. The word of the Lord was sounding forth from them. They were sending forth that gospel. Why? Because they loved non-Christians. And they wanted them to be saved. They wanted them to hear the gospel. And what greater thing can be done? What more loving work can be done 
than teaching the saving gospel of Jesus Christ that pulls people out of the clutches of the devil and puts them into the hands of God. And the word of the Lord was sounding forth from them because they lied. And that's what we need to have. Can anybody commend us? What about us as individuals? Could somebody be thankful for us because of our love for God, for our brethren, for the non-Christians that are around us? Paul was able to be thankful for the church in Thessalonica because of that. And that's what we need to have. But there was a third thing that he pointed out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. He said, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Why were they able to endure the work of faith, the labor of love, the hardship, the toil? Because they had a steadfast hope. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 describes that hope. They turned from idols to serve a true and living God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. They had the hope that they would be rescued from God's wrath that was coming. Paul commented further on that in chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. He says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is a comfort because it strengthened their hope. It was what helped them hang on and continue on despite what they were enduring and what was going on around them. They had a steadfast hope. What was the wrath they were hoping to avoid? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, describes it. We read it this morning, I believe, but let's read it again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the power of His glory when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. There was wrath coming. Judgment. A penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the power of His glory. And the Thessalonians didn't want to endure that. Their hope was that they were going to avoid that wrath. As we consider this concept of steadfastness of hope, we understand that in the Bible, when it talks about this kind, this kind of hope, it's not talking about wishful thinking. It's not talking about the same kind of hope that we have that some distant relative will decide to leave us a million dollars. That's just wishful thinking. Not likely to happen, but we wouldn't mind if it did, would we? But this kind of hope, is the earnest expectation based on conviction, based on faith, that we know it's coming. And as Paul talked about these Thessalonians, he pointed out, you've got a steadfast hope. You are convicted. And therefore, you are not, not just wishing that someday it might happen, but earnestly convicted that it's coming. And therefore, you want to be prepared for it. That's that kind of hope. And then when it talks about the steadfastness of hope, that steadfastness. It's, it's the idea 
of someone who is loyal to his faith and to his hope, deliberately pursuing the goals that have been established despite the hardship and the turmoil and trouble that faces him. And that's, that's the concept of the steadfastness of hope. No matter what's happening, continuing on and serving God. Because you see, these Christians were going through persecution. They were enduring hardship. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul told them, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, talking about the affliction that Christians face, but then regarding the Thessalonians in particular, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. They were enduring hardship. Not everybody was going through hardship. These Christians were going through it. Being persecuted. Some beaten and imprisoned and killed for their faith. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And the Thessalonians were going through that. But Paul said, I'm thankful for you because you are maintaining a steadfast hope. They knew, as we know, that life is hard. But they were going to endure. They knew, as we know, that people aren't going to like us because of our faith. But they endured and continued on with the work of faith and their labor of love. They knew, as we know, that Jesus is coming. As Paul presented there in chapter 4, verse 16 through 18 that we read moments ago. They knew the reward was coming. And they knew, as we know, that the glory that will be revealed in us, to us and through us, is not worthy to be compared with what we're going through now. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I think I said that backwards. The suffering that we're going through now is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. And that, interestingly, in that same context, if you just keep reading down in verse 24, this is Romans 8, 24, For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. That's that concept of that hope. And one of the things that Paul is pointing out there is that we were saved not because we expected something to happen here. We were saved not because we expected somehow to be removed from all trouble and turmoil in this life. We were saved in hope. That is, recognizing that there was going to be something coming down the line that we don't see here. And we're hanging on to that. And that's what the Thessalonians were doing. And that's why Paul is able to say, I am thankful for you because you have that steadfast hope. You're hanging on to it. And it was because of the steadfastness of their hope, because they were looking to the eternal reward, looking past the moment able to look to that future reward that God had promised and earnestly wait for it, eagerly expecting it. Because they were able to do that, they could continue on with their work of faith and their labor of love. That's the church at Thessalonica. A church that not only believed, 
But they worked hard because of their belief. They not only loved, but they labored in their love. And they didn't have a momentary hope. They had a steadfast, patient hope that no matter what was happening, they were able to look to that reward, trusting God's promises. And because of that, they continued on. And that's what we need to be. That's what we are. But just as Paul looked at the Thessalonians and said, you're doing a great job at this, excel still more. That's what we've got to do. We're doing a good job. But we've got to excel still more in our work of faith, our labor of love, and the steadfastness of our hope. And when we do that, that is when we can look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 through 18. And that's when we know that we'll be ready that when Jesus comes, He'll call us home with Him. And we'll glorify God in that day while those who afflict us will be afflicted. We will marvel and glory and honor in God. I'm looking forward to that day. But it takes work every day on our part to get there. I certainly hope today's lesson has helped you as we have learned how to be more like those Christians at Thessalonica and be a church like the church at Thessalonica. Let's remember the three things we learned. If we want God to be thankful for us, we must first have a work of faith, second, a labor of love, and third, a steadfast hope. If we follow these three keys, then God can be thankful for us as one of His congregations. If someone has given you this lesson, let me invite you to come to our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there that you're free to download. We have audio versions and outline versions. Download those, study them, share them, listen to them, do whatever you think will be beneficial to God's people and will glorify our God in heaven. If you have any questions about the church at Thessalonica or about the church here in Franklin, If you'd like to know how to be a member of Christ Church, please give us a call at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.